Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you are here with us for the start of this series. If you're new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are new, I want to invite you to fill out a Connect card that you have available in the seats around you and drop it off at the Welcome Center before you leave today. Would love to invite you to dinner, get to know you a little bit, be able to chat and answer any questions that you have about the church. And one other thing I'll say before we get started is if it would be easier for you to follow along with the message in another language, you can do that at efree.org slash translate. It's available in over 60 different languages. Just pull that up and it'll be transcribed live as I am talking this morning. We're going to take a short break from the First Timothy series that we've been working through. We're going to be in First Timothy all year long, but we're going to take some breaks along the way, some little detours, if you will, to cover some related topics that are important to understanding some of the things that Paul is talking about in First Timothy. And so the series that we're going to start today is actually a redo of a series we did a couple of years ago. But as the pastors and I were talking last year about what to cover in the messages this year, we all really felt that it was time for us to come back to this again for a couple of different reasons. The undivided principles and the undivided mindset we feel is so important to our church and to our culture that we need to keep it on the front burner. And we can sense in certain areas that, it, that there are pieces of it that are kind of slipping away and we need to bring that back and make sure we remember, hey, this is a core part of who we are, that we don't divide over secondary issues and then the tools for how to do that. It's so important to keep that in front of us at all times. But also there are a lot of people here who did not go through this series the first time. There are a lot of new people to our church that weren't a part of it. And so for them, it's important for them to understand that this is a core part of who we are and to learn how to do that and to have that language to be able to talk about the differences that we might find ourselves in within the church. But then also, as we get into the rest of 1 Timothy, we are going to find some topics that could be very divisive for us as a church. And so it makes perfect sense to us for many different reasons to revisit this series. Now it's been completely updated and it's all kind of a new presentation, a new approach to it. Different people will be doing things different weeks versus last time. So hopefully it will be fresh and new for all of you who have been through it before. And for those of you for whom this is new material, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. And it's going to help us, I think, as a church prepare for the rest of the messages for the rest of the year. So that is my disclaimer about this series that we're getting into. In 1 Timothy so far, we've talked about difficult people in the church, people that are divisive. We've talked about people spreading conflicting beliefs, division in the church. We've talked about the priority of love and and, uh, not being judgmental with people, being merciful with people. We've talked about the new covenant that replaces the old Mosaic laws and the confusion that some of the beliefs that Timothy was dealing with were based out of those old Mosaic laws. And we talked about assassin Christians who for various reasons and motivations infiltrate churches and cause problems and division. And you can see the trend here. A lot of Paul's writing to the churches was about how to deal with difficult people and conflict and conflict over beliefs in the church. That was a big deal to Paul, that the Christians learn how to manage their differences of belief wisely because it's what caused so many problems in so many churches right there in the New Testament in the early church. Now, I'm just curious, and I want you to be really honest with me. How many of you have ever experienced or witnessed conflict over beliefs in a church? Just raise your hand nice and high if that's you. Okay, I, I expected a few of you. We've all kind of experienced this or witnessed this idea of we have a differences of belief and so we have some conflict. And now I want to do something really, really risky. I want to ask you to tell me what those beliefs were that you observed some conflict over. But here's the thing, okay? I'm going to give you an, uh, an out. This can be something that you were a part of or something that you observed, So you're saying this for a friend. (laughs) What are some of the belief conflicts that you have experienced in church world? Who's got one? What's this? Baptism. Baptism. What about baptism? Um, Child child Yeah, exactly. So you've got baptism, you've got infant baptism, you've got do you sprinkle, do you pour, do you dip? You've got uh, baptismal regeneration. Does baptism actually save you? That's, that's a matter there as well. Yes, belief differences over that. I heard music back there, styles of music. have absolutely caused conflict in the church. What else, Steve? Saved by works, not by grace. 
Saved by works and not by grace. That is absolutely a conflict. In fact, that's the one uh, that I think Paul was dealing with in 1 Timothy there a few weeks ago. What else? Belief conflict in the church. What have you observed? What have you experienced? Yeah. Over election. Okay, like uh, this year we're going to have an election. And, oh, different kind. So... You mean election as far as did God choose before the foundation of the world who would be saved and and by virtue of that who would not? Or is there some sort of libertarian free will involved that determines a free will choice that helps determine whether someone is a saved individual? Yeah, in the back. Sorry? The Lord's Supper and communion, absolutely. So there's consubstantiation and transubstantiation. And there's the, the idea that, that Jesus' body is physically present in some way or it's spiritually present in some way in communion. Or is it just symbolic? That's a great one. What else? Belief division in the church. Yeah. The roles of men and women in the church. That's very timely. Absolutely. That's something that we are wrestling through with the elders right now. The elder board is. And that's something there's been a lot of conflict over in churches for a while, especially recently. Yeah, we've got one here and then there. The time of the rapture. That's right. End times things, prophecy things. There's lots of conflict over that. We had another one over here. And spiritual gifts, yeah, which ones are still applicable today? Which ones were just temporary? If there were any, are they still relevant today? Those are all things that we have division over in the church. Yeah, one more. And speaking in tongues would be one of those spiritual gifts. That Does that apply today? If it does, is it an angelic language? Is it a real literal language that you can speak in? That's a great one, yeah. The use of alcohol in the church, yes. And some people have a problem with that and believe that it's sinful. Some people think it's just unwise, but no one should do it. Some people are like, hey, it's totally fine. Bring it on. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for any of that, but we have differences in the church. These are all really, really good. And, And there are some more that we haven't even talked about yet. Belief differences that we have that cause conflict for us, like over what TV shows and movies you might watch, or dancing, or smoking, or Bible versions. Uh, Gender roles at home, the number of genders, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, creation of the world. Did it happen a long time ago or not? Spiritual gifts we mentioned, the end times we talked about. Should you use birth control? Should you keep the Sabbath in some way? How modest should you be? What does that look like? What should you wear to church? Should you have piercings? Should you have tattoos? There's so many things that we could talk about that you know all of these things cause division in churches. I'm not trying to make a statement about any of those other than these are things that we tend to divide over. They're differences of belief that we tend to divide over. And that's a weird thing to me because you would just think that since we all serve the same God, right? We all serve the same God if we're followers of Jesus. We, we all have the same basic Bible, little different translations here or there, but the same basic Bible. We all have the same Holy Spirit inside of us. If that's true for all genuine followers of Jesus, then why would anybody have any difference of belief? I mean, shouldn't we all just be on the same page about everything? Isn't the Holy Spirit guiding us into truth and so we all should be following the same truth and we all end up at this one singular point where everybody's like, yep, in agreement, in agreement, in agreement, in agreement. Everything's the same. Why don't we have that in the church? Why is that not the reality for us if we all have the same Bible, the same God, the same Holy Spirit? I'm gonna give you two main reasons. Two main reasons why I think that is the case. And the first one is very profound. It's that we are people. We are people with a sinful nature and pride and jealousy and bitterness and anger in our own thoughts and our own experiences that all culminate in a person who is flawed and fallible and who looks at the evidence and interprets it in a certain way and comes to this conclusion and then because of our ego and our arrogance we say it can be nothing other than this. This is what I have determined I believe and it must be God that showed me this and therefore all of you are wrong. It's what we do. We're people. We're sinful human nature people. And the other reason why we have these differences of belief in churches among Christians is that we have a very real spiritual enemy. In 1 Peter, he's described as roaming the earth like a lion seeking whom he can devour. Ephesians 6 says we need spiritual armor to stand against the arrows of the devil that come against us. We need the shield of to hold up and block those arrows. Why? Because the devil has schemes against us. He is trying to tempt us. He is trying to work against us. Paul talks about his schemes multiple times, specific strategies that Satan uses to try to get us to go astray and to divide and to damage the church of God. That's what he's trying to do. And so you and I need to realize the next time we're tempted to argue about something with another believer, we just need to take into account the fact that maybe, just maybe, this is a fiery arrow of the devil who is working to try to influence the church. 
and reconsider that argument we're about to engage in. Most of you are familiar with the author C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia. What you may not know is that many of Lewis's books were written specifically so that he could communicate theology in an understandable way through a story, through a narrative. And there's this one great book called The Screw Tape Letters. Has anyone read The Screw Tape Letters? Fantastic book. I highly recommend you read it. There's a senior demon who is instructing a junior demon in how to tempt and influence a man that they call the patient. And the patient has recently been checking out a couple of churches. The junior demon freaks out. This guy's going to church now. This is terrible. All is lost. Everything we've been trying to keep this guy from, away from God, away from the kingdom of God. And now he's going to churches. And the senior demon writes back and says, that's not a problem. That's okay. Here's why. He says, there's one good point about which both of these churches have in common. They are both party churches. And he doesn't mean party like having a good time. He means party like a party, like a faction, like a political party. There's a faction, there's a tribe of people in these churches. They're divisive churches. I think I warned you before, he says, that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on the really doctrinal issues about those. The more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion. This is in the Church of England. When neither party could possibly state the difference between the more important doctrines. And all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are an admirable ground for our activities we have quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other unessentials. He goes on to say that if believers really practiced what Paul taught about beliefs on secondary issues, you would expect to find them respecting each other's views instead of dividing over them. And then he says this, and so it would have been, but for our ceaseless labor. In other words, the church would have been a really nice united place, but we've worked really hard to make sure it doesn't go that way. Without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. Without the influence of demons, the church might have been a place of love and graciousness and humility and respect, but we've worked really, really hard to make sure they stay divided. Now, it's just a story. But I think Lewis is absolutely right. Satan wants to divide the church into different parties, different factions, different tribes. And so I would submit to you that Christian tribalism is one of Satan's most effective strategies against the church. Paul says in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 2 that Satan has specific schemes that he uses to attack us. What Satan does not want is a church filled with love and humility. He does not want a church that is gracious about our differences. He does not want a church that is undivided. But that's exactly what God wants. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be there all morning. We're going to start in chapter 1, looking at verse 10. We're going to bounce around a little bit. If you don't have a Bible with you, the YouVersion Bible app is a great option on your phone, or you can follow along on the screens or at efree.org slash Bible. 1 Corinthians 10. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul says, I appeal to you. Dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, the word that Paul uses here for appeal is not a command, but it's also not a suggestion. It's a word that means to plead or to beg. It's the same word that the prodigal, when the prodigal son came home and his father was rejoicing and he went to the older brother and he said, come and rejoice with us, celebrate that your brother has come home. The word that the father uses there is to plead, to beg. I beg of you, Paul is saying, live in harmony with each other. And that phrase, live in harmony, is really cool. It actually means literally in the Greek, say the same thing. I beg of you, say the same thing. It means that even in your discussions where there might be some disagreements, you leave saying the same thing. Ultimately, you're saying the same thing. There's something more important that you agree on than what you disagree on. So you leave saying the same things. He says, don't let there be divisions in the church. No divisions. Don't break off into tribes where you only associate with some people and not the people that disagree with you. That's exactly what the people in Corinth were doing. 
We'll see that in a few verses. They were splitting up the church because of these different views on different things. They had differences of belief. And we have those too. We just talked about all of these different areas that we disagree on. And when you are faced with one of those disagreements or you walk through the hallway and suddenly you hear one of those going on, we tend to have one of four different main reactions. And they're not all, always bad, these reactions. Some of them are pretty much always bad. Some of them you know, can kind of be good sometimes. But there are four main ways that we tend to respond when we are encountering some kind of belief difference in the church. The first one is naivety. And naivety says, I don't know and I don't need to know. Whatever that thing is about the rapture and the timing of the rapture is not going to change my day tomorrow. And so I'm not even going to look into it. How many of you are like, yep, that's my camp. I don't know and I don't need to know. And real honest there. I got a few hands. I don't know. I don't need to know. And sometimes that's an okay answer. Not everyone needs to dive into the language of the Greek and figure out whether it's this word or that word, and yet there are scholars who go at it over those things. Sometimes I don't know and I don't need to know is an okay response. But other times it keeps us out of discussions that we really ought to be in. Some issues are important enough that there are consequences for us, for what we believe, for our actions, for how we interact with other people or for other people, to where we need to know something about the issue, about the discussion, about the debate that is going on. So naivety isn't always a good response. The second response we might have is passivity. And passivity is the cousin of naivety, but instead of just saying, I don't know and I don't need to know, passivity says, well, I might know something about it, but I just don't want to get involved. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm just going to stay passive. And again, sometimes that's a legitimate response to an issue. Sometimes the best thing to do is just walk away or not get involved. I totally get that. But there are times where you have an opportunity to be a peacemaker, to step in, to help someone grow, to give someone a different perspective. There are times when you could really help someone who is just stuck in a rut with some kind of a belief issue to say, let me just share another thought with you, just to think about. And so if we're too passive, we might miss opportunities that we have to help build up the body of Christ and help it to grow. Passivity is not always a good option. Anxiety is another way we respond. Anxiety says, I don't even want to think about it. Like, it's not that I don't want to learn about it or talk about it. I'm going to run the other direction because every time we have that conversation around the dinner table, I'm just, shy, just trying to hide under the table because I'm so done with it. It makes me feel tense. It makes me feel uh, uh, flustered. It gets me so worked up and I avoid it because it makes me uncomfortable. And anxiety is not a good response to differences of belief. But there's a fourth way that we respond. And the fourth way is probably the most damaging and that is animosity. And animosity says, I don't like that person because they disagree with me. We have a difference between us and they said something that I disagree with and now I actually have a a distaste, a dislike for that person. Anybody ever experienced that? Like I don't know why, I can't even explain it, but he said something I disagree with and then he contradicted me and now I can't stand that guy. And we respond with animosity over all kinds of things. You voted for that person? How could you? You listen to that kind of music? You watch those TV shows? You read those books? We have a difference over this thing. And so now I don't like you. And please hear me carefully on this. I am not saying that it's wrong to share our opinions or to share that we disagree or share disagreements. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. What I am saying is when we respond with animosity just because someone disagrees with us, that's when we get into dangerous territory. Because now just because there's a different view, a different perspective, if we start to get into this emotional reaction of now I actually value you less and I don't like you as a person just because we have a disagreement. Does that ever happen in churches? Maybe a little bit. How do we deal with that? We react with animosity sometimes, sometimes naivety, passivity, anxiety, and Paul wants something completely different for us, and it's right there in verse 10. Look back at verse 10, and Paul says, rather, instead of all that other stuff, rather be of one mind united in thought and purpose. The right way to respond to differences of belief is with unity, and unity says, I choose to live in harmony and be of one mind even when I disagree. That's not an easy thing to do. I choose to live in harmony and be of one mind even when I disagree. Sometimes issues just get us worked up. 
Sometimes they start to make our blood boil a little bit and we think, how can I even get along with that person when we disagree on this thing? I mean, if they would just agree with you on everything, wouldn't the world be a better place? Right? How many of you think that? If everybody would just agree with me and my positions, we could all get along. There wouldn't need to be any of this fighting. It would be so much easier. But we all know that's not how it works. That's not reality. So how does this whole living in harmony thing work? How can we be united when we have all these divisions? The word that Paul uses for divisions, this is really cool, is a word that literally means a tear or a rip. And it's used oftentimes to refer to a tear or rip in a fishing net like this one. So when you've got a fishing net and you've got little tears in here that just occur naturally over the course of fishing, if you let those go too long, those will become big holes. And suddenly this thing is not useful for much anymore. It's certainly not useful for the purpose that it was made for. You can't cast it out and catch fish with it if it's full of holes. And that is the word that Paul uses for divisions. It's a tear. It's a rip in the fabric. And the same thing is true of the Christian community. When there are tears that are untreated and left alone like this, they end up growing into big holes and suddenly the church cannot fulfill its purpose anymore because it's full of these big holes and the church is, instead of reaching out to the world to fulfill its purpose, it is now internally fighting with each other. And it can't do what God made it to do because the holes become big and they're not tended to. But here's the really cool thing. The word that Paul uses to be united is the word for mend, restore, put back together. When Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he comes across James and John, what they were doing, the Bible says, was mending the tares in their fishing nets. They were working on their nets because over the course of fishing, you just naturally have these tares that will form And if you leave them like that, excuse me, hold on a minute. That fishing net. Really got to me. That did not happen the first service. Must be made of hemp or something. This is going to be a fun message. Jesus sees James and John. They're fixing their nets. They're mending them so they can go back out and fulfill the purpose that they were made for. And the church is like that. The goal in the church is not to have no tears ever. Tears are going to happen. They're going to pop up from time to time. There's going to be differences in the church. That's just going to happen. The goal is not to never have any tears. The goal is to constantly be mending them. Paul doesn't say you should never have those. He says, I want you to mend them. Be working on mending those. Fix the relationships. Unity is not the absence of differences. Unity is the mending of division. A few chapters later, Paul talks about people who hold to different beliefs about eating food offered to idols. I've actually been offered food that was sacrificed to an idol before me and then given to me. And I'll share that story later on in this series. But there were people in Corinth who believed that eating food offered to an idol was a sin. It was participating in idol worship. How could you do that? And there were other people who said, hey, it's just just food. Food's food. God made food. He gave it to us. The idol's not real. We should be able to have that. It doesn't mean anything. And the shocking thing is that Paul does not tell them, okay, this side's right, this side's wrong, you guys all need to agree on this position. He doesn't say that. Instead, he tells them how they're supposed to treat each other, even with their differences on this. It's really fascinating. So Paul did not tell them to agree on the issue. He told them to agree on how they treat each other on the issue. Because being united does not mean we never disagree. It means that when we do, we take care to keep the relationships intact, if at all possible, to mend the nets, to be united. Now, for some of us today, that might be all we needed to hear because you've got some tears in your nets with your spouse, with your kids, with with other family members, other friends, people at church. You've got some tears there that you haven't taken care to mend and be united, even though there's some differences there. And to help you with that, I'm going to give you a tool. 
It's something we've talked about here before, but we need to go through it again. A tool that will help you to mend the nets, a tool that will help you to understand your beliefs better, to understand the beliefs of other people better, and to give you a language, a common language for all of us, including a lot of people that were not here the first time we did this. A common language that we can use to talk about our differences in a gracious way where we live in harmony, we stay united, undivided, and we all leave saying the same thing. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if every Christian in God's church were able to do that? Get together, talk about our differences, and leave saying the same thing. How do we do that? I'm going to take you to several passages in 1 Corinthians that introduce a concept that is clear throughout Scripture, but it's not one we talk about a lot in churches. And that is that we need to prioritize our beliefs. There is a hierarchy of beliefs. Jesus even talks about this. There's a hierarchy of beliefs, some that are more important than others. And when we figure that out, when we learn to prioritize our beliefs well, it helps us to understand what context is this issue I'm having this disagreement over in? How important is this to me versus something that might be more important that we both agree on? How do we figure that out, that prioritization of beliefs? And I, I believe, I've just become convinced that this is one of the most important things a mature follower of Jesus can learn to do, is put their beliefs in the right prioritization. Now, that may sound a little strange to someone who's never been through this before. So I'm going to take you to some verses and show you what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right where we left off, verse 11, says this, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Or others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. So they were divided into these factions, these tribes. And here is Paul's response to this. He says, has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. In other words, he's saying you're taking something that was meant to be united and you are dividing it. People were following these different leaders within the church. Good people, by the way. Apollos, Peter, Paul, none of those are bad people. Those are good people. And they're following these different leaders. And so what is happening is one group of people is saying, well, I follow Apollos, and here's what he says about meat that's been offered to idols. And another group of people over here says, well, I follow Paul, and when he was here, here's what he said about eating meat offered to idols. And so they were fighting with each other. They had these quarrels and these factions that they were dividing into within the church over this issue and some other issues. And the church was at risk of splitting up over this. All great people, Apollos, Peter, Paul, and Paul does not say, hey, everybody else is wrong, listen to me. He doesn't say, stop listening to those other guys. Not at all. He says, let me tell you how you're supposed to get along even though you disagree. His message is, that it, there is something that is more important than the differences between these groups. So what he's saying in a nutshell is that what unites you is more important than what divides you. Keep that in mind. What unites you as you have these disagreements, as you have these quarrels, as you have these differences, what unites you is more important than what divides you. I know you have these divisions, but what unites you is more, and he's going to go into that. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, but the name of Christ. As valuable as the teaching of Paul and Apollos and Peter is, your identity as a follower of Jesus is so much more important. And that person that you disagree with, that person you've been fighting against and arguing against, and you're not even sure if they're a Christian anymore, that person still believes in salvation by Jesus Christ alone and is a follower of Jesus and a child of God and is made in his image. And so you need to respect them and love them and care for them even though you have this disagreement about what you eat. That's what Paul's saying. There's something more important. Now, at the same time, there are times when our differences of belief are worth dividing over. We saw that just a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy when Paul kicks Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church. Why? Because they had a different belief. And they were teaching a different belief. And it rose to a level where it, said, where it was like, this is the most important thing. You, you can't do this. So Paul is saying, don't be divided. Live in harmony. But there is a point where you cross a threshold that, that says, yes, you do need to divide. So how do we figure that out? How do we determine what matters more and what matters less? We like to say that we focus on the essentials and leave a lot of room in the non-essentials. But how do you determine what, to, what is essential and what is non-essential? And that's where we need a tool 
that I call the buckets of belief. So I'm going to introduce it to you today, and then we're going to cover it in more detail in the next four weeks. All of us have different beliefs. Some beliefs matter more than others. Some beliefs are worth fighting for, and some beliefs are not. Some beliefs are worth dying for, and some beliefs are not. How many of you, for instance, believe that the right football team won the big, big game last week? Okay, the right football team won, yeah? Okay, all right. Would you die for that belief? Probably not. I certainly hope not. How many of you believe that toilet paper should roll over the roll away from the wall? Okay, good, good. I'm in your tribe. If you look up the original patent, the image is of it rolling away from the wall over the roll, okay? I rest my case. Would I die for that belief? No. Would I fight over it? Maybe, but I wouldn't die for it. Some beliefs are more important than others. Some beliefs are really serious. What we believe about theology and lifestyle choices and doctrines and even politics sometimes, those things can get us really worked up and we're very serious about those. So we need to figure out where these fit and how we prioritize them and the buckets help us to do that. The first bucket we're gonna look at is the preference bucket. And if you wanna write these down, there's a note sheet on your weekly that you can pull out there and write all these down and have these for later. Preferences are beliefs. A preference is a belief that one thing is better than another thing. And I hesitate to go anywhere near this net, but I'm going to risk it for you. I believe with all of my heart that crunchy peanut butter is better than creamy peanut butter. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I understand that. We can still live in harmony with each other, just barely, but we can. Now, my kids, I still eat creamy peanut butter because my kids love this. Their taste buds haven't matured yet. And so eventually, <laughs> we will all be eating crunchy peanut butter. Now, how many of you think I'm absolutely crazy and creamy peanut butter is the way to go? Steve, I saw you. You are, you are a creamy peanut butter guy. There you go. No need to go to the grocery store today. You got lunch taken care of. How many of you are in my tribe and you're like, crunchy peanut butter is where it's at. I am all about the crunchy peanut butter. Wow, we got some good ones. This one goes to Mike. That's a, that's a preference that I have. Okay, it's a belief. The crunchy peanut butter is better than creamy peanut butter. I have more preferences. You probably do too. Another preference of mine is that if given the choice, I would rather have these little Ghirardelli chocolate squares instead of this giant Hershey's bar. Now, nothing against Hershey's. I like Hershey's chocolate, it's okay. But if someone were to put these two options in front of me, I would say, give me the little quality chocolate over the quantity of Hershey's chocolate. That's just where I'm at, okay? Now, I'm curious. How many of you would say, you're crazy, Adam. Of course you take the giant chocolate bar. I see a few hands out there. Not as many as I expected, actually. I got, I got one, an early hand right back here. Hand this over to that guy in the middle there. He gets the giant bar. Quantity over quality, right? How many of you would say, no, I would take the little tiny Ghirardelli chocolate squares? Yeah, okay, good. Good for you people. I, I'm with you there. I have a preference, a, a belief, that a Porsche is better than a Nissan. I just... It's not that a Nissan's a bad car, but a Porsche is just so much appealing to me. It's just a belief that I have. It's a preference that I have. Now, how many of you are with me? You're like, yeah, I'll take the Porsche all day long. Okay. It's a few hands. How many of you are like, you're crazy. The practical, sensible thing is the Nissan. Take the Nissan. Anybody? We got a few out there. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, I just so happen to have the keys. I'm just kidding. They're miniatures. I didn't give anything over here. Who said they'd take the Porsche? We got the Porsche over here. Who said they'd take the Nissan? Who's a Nissan person? Oh, my voice sounds weird over here. Lynn, Lynn gave you up. There you go. That has special meaning for you, doesn't it? I know. We all have these different preferences about all kinds of things. And we have lots of preferences in the church, too about things like music and dress code and all sorts of things that, that we have a preference for, but we wouldn't necessarily say those are based in Scripture, that everyone else has to follow that. 
Preferences are personal opinions that are not based on the Bible or the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul had preferences too. Sometimes he even shared them. Here's one that he shared in 1 Corinthians. He said, I say this as a concession, not a command, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. How many of you are glad this is a preference, not a command? This is Paul's, and you know, here's the thing. If this weren't just Paul's preference, Christianity would have been a relatively short-lived movement. There was a religion that followed this practice, and they're not around anymore. So this is his preference, not a command. That's a good thing. But Paul is like, hey, if you guys didn't have to worry about working on your marriage and raising kids, do you realize what you could do for the kingdom? Do you know how much fun I'm having out here going all over the place? That was Paul. That was his preference. But it wasn't a command. In fact, a few verses later, he says, now I am giving you a command from the Lord that doesn't come from me. Just to be clear. That was my preference. This is now a command that comes from God. The second bucket is the conviction bucket. And two of the best places to see convictions are in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Romans 14. 1 Corinthians 8 says, so what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not a real God. There's only one God. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. They're mistaken, but that's what they think of it. And their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. Paul's saying it doesn't matter what you eat. That's not what God cares about. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom, you have freedom, but your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. So he says you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it's God's. God created it, it's just meat. The idol didn't change it at all. But if someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept that invitation if you want to. In other words, they're probably going to be serving meat that was sacrificed to idols. Oftentimes, it's a cheaper meat. This is especially a party meat because if you're serving a lot of people, you're maybe not going top shelf. You're gonna get some of the cheaper meat that was offered a second hand from the marketplace. Eat whatever's offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose... That someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. So somebody's sitting next to you at this party. It's it's already been established. It's a party of an unbeliever. So he took that out of the equation. This unbeliever at the party that you are at, you're trying to be a good witness. He's coming around, he's serving this meat. And the guy sitting next to you was saved two weeks ago, came out of paganism, used to worship idols. He saw the host uh, a couple of days ago in the marketplace, in the idol aisle, buying the meat. And he leans over to you and says, um, this meat was sacrificed to idols and pushes it away. What do you do? Paul has already established that it is fine for you to eat this meat. It's okay. But Paul says, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you, it may not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. That is a conviction. I'll give you another example in Romans 14. Paul says, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. Here's what he's saying. Some Christians mistakenly think that it's wrong to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. The idol doesn't do anything to the meat. It's fine to eat. And some people would say we shouldn't go anywhere near that stuff. And since they have that personal conviction, if they go against it, they are sinning. Not sinning because it's wrong to eat the meat. Sinning because they thought it was wrong and they did it anyway. They, they violated their conscience. They sinned against their conscience. Not a rule that God made, but they sinned against their conscience. They were willing to do something they thought was wrong. And they probably sound, by the way, very spiritual as they talk to other people who recognize that there's more freedom there. And they say, we shouldn't go anywhere near that stuff. Why are you going anywhere near that? We can't participate in that. We can't have anything to do with that. They sound very, very spiritual in all of that. But Paul doesn't say, you can say back to them, grow up, you weak conscience people. You just need to learn that it's okay to eat this stuff. Have a, have a snack. That's not what he says. He says, look, if they have doubts about it, then for them to do it is a sin. And if you and you're partaking of it right in front of them after learning that they have a problem with this in their conscience, if you go ahead and lead them astray in this area, then you are causing them to stumble. And so now both of you are sinning about something that's not technically a sin in and of itself. 
but because they believe it is and are doing it anyway and because you are causing them to stumble, you're both entering into that sin. So here's how we define the conviction bucket. Personal beliefs based on biblical principles that are not mandated for everyone. See, someone could point to a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5.22, which says, stay away from all kinds of evil. And they could say, there's a lot of evil on the internet. So I'm just not gonna have that in my house. No internet in my house. Stay away from all that evil. And if that is their conviction and they believe God has brought them to that conclusion, that is totally fine and it would be a sin for them to go against that. But what they cannot do is then turn to you and say, and so because I have this conviction, now you must not have internet in your home. Because internet's not in that verse. See, this is a conviction that's based on a biblical principle. But the biblical principle has an application that comes with it. There's an interpretive nature of staying away. What does that mean? 50 feet? 50 yards? What is the evil that's being talked about there? There's an interpretive nature to this where God gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us into these things. And there are very realistic times where sometimes you might have something that God has led you to stay away from that he has not led this person to stay away from. For various reasons, those are our personal convictions. Convictions are personal beliefs that God holds you accountable for, but you cannot hold anyone else accountable for. Third bucket, the doctrine bucket. The word translated as doctrine in the Bible, often it's the word didaskalia. It literally just means established teaching or sound teaching, good teaching, wholesome teaching. We kind of put the word doctrine up on a high level and sort of a, a podium for the word doctrine. Literally, though, the word just means good teaching, established teaching. In Titus 1.9, Paul is explaining how to pick church leaders, and he says he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching. That's the word. That is the word that is often translated doctrine and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. It's an important thing to Paul. Jesus said, when he was talking about the religious leaders in his day in Matthew, he said, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. That word commands from God in the original is the word that's translated as doctrine in many translations. Jesus is saying they teach man-made ideas as if they are doctrines. Doctrine is important to Jesus. It's important to Paul. It's important to get the doctrine right. It's important to not put man-made ideas into the doctrine bucket. But we do have a problem here because many Christians, many churches, many organizations have a different idea of what constitutes doctrine, what is established teaching, sound teaching. And so each group or organization or church comes up with a different list of the things that they think go into the doctrine bucket. And some of those lists are pretty long. Our list is pretty short because we want to be very careful to only put in there the things that are very clearly and obviously doctrinal important teachings for us to all abide by and leave a whole lot of stuff up to interpretation and have unity and harmony around a lot of other things where we have unity and agreement on these most important things. We keep the list relatively short. We don't want to put any man-made ideas in there, any, any clearly interpretive things in there. So we're going to define the doctrine bucket like this. These are beliefs that a church or group of Christians consider sound biblical teaching and essential for unity and fellowship in that group. So we put in our doctrinal bucket the statement of faith and any other positions established by church leaders here. For instance, in our church, we uh, do not practice infant baptism. We practice the baptism of believers only. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why. I've done that a couple of times previously. But we only baptize people who have already trusted in Jesus. Now, the church down the road may baptize infants. In fact, they may even put it in their doctrine bucket. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile the fact that there are other churches that have different doctrinal statements than we do? Do we say they're not Christians? Are they not followers of Jesus? Can we not be united with them in some sense because we have a disagreement about a point of doctrine? And of course, the answer to that is, no, we don't divide with them. We, we maybe divide over where we go on Sunday morning, but ultimately we recognize we're part of the same church. There will be people in heaven who practice infant baptism and people in heaven who practice believer's baptism. There will be people in heaven 
who believe that God chose before the foundation of the world who would be saved and by virtue of that who would not and people who believe there is a real libertarian free will choice involved in that. To get really theological on you, there will be people in heaven who believe that regeneration precedes faith and people who believe faith precedes regeneration. All of those are possibilities. All of those are within the family of God. And we don't know with 100% certainty where we should stand on those. Now, some of us think we do. But the fact of the matter is we have differences on these. And yet we can still be followers of Jesus. We can still be genuine, true, born-again children of God. And that is why we need a fourth bucket. We need a bucket for whatever is necessary to be a genuine follower of Jesus, even if we disagree on some points of doctrine. Some doctrines are at a higher level. And if you don't believe those, then you're not a true follower of Jesus. And when judgment day comes, you'll be on the outside looking in. We call the fourth bucket the dogma bucket. And dogma is not a word we use very often, so let me just define it for you. The dictionary says it is a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. Now, I had to look up that word incontrovertibly. And so I will share it with you in case you're not familiar with it. It means obvious and provable. So it's a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority that is obvious and provable. It's clear. It's the most important thing. It's the stuff that if you read the Bible, which is our authority, this is what you need to walk away with at a bare minimum in order to be a follower of Jesus. And what would we say that is? It's the gospel message. It's the truth about Jesus and how he came to save us because we were broken and lost. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, for Christ did not send me Oh, I missed this one. Beliefs established by the Bible as incontrovertibly true and essential to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's how we define the dogma bucket. Here is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. That's most important. And not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. That's the most important thing. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. That's the most important thing, the message of the cross. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, which by the way is where most of our arguments are based on. I come up with this clever theory or that clever theory about how things work behind the scenes or how they're going to happen in the future. He didn't save the world through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Not your clever theories. Not your ideas about theology or prophecy or what you've deduced about food or drinks or what people should eat or not, not your personal views about politics or music or other non-essentials. What matters most? It's Jesus and the message of the cross. That matters more than anything else. Not that the other things don't matter, but we need to keep them in perspective. The saving power of Jesus Christ is what unites us even though other things might divide us. And if we can all agree on that and enter our conversations that way, then we will have learned the secret to living in harmony and not being divided. We'll have figured that out if we can all leave saying the same thing about what we believe in Jesus. Now this may be new to some of you. This may be something you've never heard of before. It's actually been around for a long, long time in different forms. Uh, but this might not be something you have heard. And so you may have a lot of questions about this. And my encouragement to you is come back each week. This was just the primer. We're going to get into each of these buckets in much greater detail over the next four weeks. So come back for that. But the question that I want to leave you with today is this. Are you putting some of your beliefs into the wrong buckets? When people divide in churches over beliefs... This is usually the root cause. It's not usually over the dogma, honestly. Most church division is not because of different gospels like what Paul was dealing with. And it's often not even over actual doctrine. It's usually because someone took something that belongs in the preference bucket and put it in the doctrine bucket. Or because someone took something that belongs in the conviction bucket and put it in the dogma bucket. And we elevate beliefs to a level of priority that they don't deserve and we cause all kinds of division and problems when we could have been united around the things that matter most that we actually generally agree on if we're followers of Jesus. When we divide, 
over those secondary issues, when we put things in the wrong bucket of belief, I really think that Paul would say to us today, I beg of you, I plead with you, live in harmony. But in order to do that, we have to understand what matters most so that we can be undivided. If you're in one of our groups this week, you are gonna have a series of questions that's gonna help you to go much deeper in this topic. And you're gonna have some awesome conversations this week, I assure you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and what it teaches us about how we can live together even though we have some differences. And as long as we are on this earth, we will view some things differently. We'll have different perspectives and beliefs and views. And and we know that you acknowledge in your word through Paul that that's normal. That's gonna happen. We're gonna have some tears in the net, but help us to be about the business of mending that division, Lord. To leave saying the same thing even if we disagree about some things. To recognize that certain things are secondary issues and we can talk about them graciously and even leave in disagreement and yet at the same time affirm each other as a brother or sister in Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to prioritize your gospel, to keep that above everything else. Help us to be sharing that with other people more than we do our views on other things, more than we talk about politics, more than we talk about different beliefs and secondary issues and preferences and convictions. Let the gospel be the first thing that we think of when we get a chance to tell somebody about what really makes a difference in our lives. Because heaven is big. It's gonna include a lot of people we disagree with right now. Help us to live in harmony with them even now. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.